The passage that we're going to talk on this morning is one of the most theologically rich passages, and much has been written about it. No one can do justice in trying to explain this passage in 30 minutes. But let's turn our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. His attitude is revealed in three ways. He emptied himself, number one. And secondly, we will look at how he humbled himself. And thirdly, we will look at how he was exalted. So the first thing about him is that he emptied himself. This is what is called as the kenosis theory or the self-emptying of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 reads, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. It says he existed. Now, the word he existed is not the usual verb to be. To be shows a definite point in time. But the word he existed is a word that speaks of an antecedent condition that is protracted into the present. So he was God in an eternity past. And that's what it says here. He existed in the form of God. What does it mean when it says form of God? What is the form of God? Now this morning I would like to introduce two terms One is form, the word form, and this word is used only for Christ. The Greek word is morphe, which is the nature or the essence of a person, existing as long as the person exists. The second word is the word fashion or schema. Fashion signifies that which comprises the manner of life and actions in general. So what's the difference? Form is something that you are. Fashion is something that you have. Form is the possession of the essence of a person. Fashion is the expression of that essence. If you are medically minded, the difference is in genotype, your gene type, and phenotype the way those genes are expressed. So the form of God includes the whole nature and the essence of deity, and it's inseparable from the essence. This is critical to understand because if we don't, we will miss the import of this passage. Form is inseparable from the essence of a person. Form is the essence of a person. If a person loses the form, he loses himself. He ceases to exist. It says, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word equality with God does not refer to equality in terms of form. It refers to equality in terms of fashion. Let me just say it again. This is referring to equality in terms of fashion and not form. It says, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, something that he wanted to grasp, not cognitively grasp, but hold on to. 
Unfortunately, we have two examples of people that try to grasp at the likeness of God. One of them is Satan in Isaiah 14, 14. It says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The second person that tried to grasp at the likeness of God was Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This temptation to be like God was too much for Adam to resist, and he ate of the fruit. Since there was a grasping by Satan and by Adam, Jesus had to not grasp in order to reverse the process that was started by the grasping by the other two. Verse 7 says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. It says he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? This has been a theological debate for centuries. We talked about the form of God. We talked about the fashion of God. Form is the possession of essence. Fashion is the expression of essence. When Christ emptied himself, He did not empty himself of his form because if he emptied himself of his form, he would cease to exist. But he emptied himself of his fashion. Then it says, being made in the likeness of man. It says, being made. That is the Greek word to be. So this is different than the word existed that we saw before where he existed in an eternity past. But now he is being made. It shows a definite point of entry into time. And it says, taking the form of a bond servant. So he existed in the form of God and he took on the form of man. Now this verse is the clearest indication of the dual natures of Jesus Christ. There are many mysteries in the Christian faith. One of them is a trinity. One of them is a metaphysical union of God and man. One of them is the unity of God's sovereignty and man's free will. This is one such mystery. The mystery of the dual natures of Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man. He had the form of God and he took on the form of man. It says he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here, and I hope you bear with me. A rule of Greek grammar says that the action of an aorist participle precedes the action of the leading verb. In fifth grade or sixth grade, you learned or whichever grade, you learned about participles. This phrase, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, there are two verbs. One verb is emptied himself. The other word is taking the form. And obviously, the participle is taking the form. The rule of Greek grammar says that the action of the aorist participle precedes the action of the leading verb. The leading verb is he emptied himself. So what this means is that he took the form of man 
before he emptied himself of the fashion of God. Becoming in the form of man preceded and was the cause of him emptying the fashion of God. So let me just go through the sequence. He was in the form of God. He had the fashion of God. He then took the form of man. He then emptied himself of the fashion of God and then took on the fashion of man. Let me say it again. He was in the form of God. He had the fashion of God. He then took on the form of man. He then emptied himself of the fashion of God and took on the fashion of man. So when Jesus was a human being, he had the form of God, the form of man, and the fashion of man. The only thing he did not have was the fashion of God, and that was what he emptied himself of. Now, I'm going to go one level deeper, okay? This is a point in the sermon where you are allowed to zone out. (laughs) It's okay. It's been a long day so far. You can zone out. I will tell you when you can zone back in. Paul uses another word in this sentence. He says, Jesus was in the likeness of man. It's a different word than morphe for form and schema for fashion. He uses another word, likeness. Why does Paul use another word in addition to saying that Jesus was in the form of a human? It is to show that even though Christ was in the form of a human, he did not have the sin nature of a human. You don't need the sin nature to be human because Adam was a human before he sinned. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Since Adam sinned, sin became a part of humanness. But sin is not necessary for humanness. And so to show that difference, Paul uses another word called likeness. To show that he was in the form of man, but he was in the likeness of man because he didn't have man's sin nature. The second thing that Jesus did was that he humbled himself. Verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says he was found in appearance as a man, and it's the same Greek word for fashion. So in outward appearance, he had the fashion of man, but inwardly he had what? The form of God and the form of man. Both. He had both forms. But outwardly, he had the fashion of man. It says he humbled himself. He chose to die the death that he did. John 10 verse 18 says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. It says that he humbled himself to the point of death. And many times when we explain this passage, we say that he humbled himself to the cross. He humbled himself to die by way of crucifixion. That is true, but that's only half true. Because death itself is humbling. 
Because God doesn't die. So just the fact of death is a humbling by Jesus. He chose to die. Because death is a result of sin. And death implies prior sin. And sin always leads to death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12 says, for just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. So just because Jesus became a human didn't mean that he had to die. He could have become a human and not died. But he humbled himself after he became a human to die. And why did he have to humble himself to die? Because the fact that he died implied that he was having sin. And how did he have sin? When he was so sinless because he was carrying the entire sin of the world. So it is that point that God, the eternal one, the one who never dies, humbled himself to die. John Phillips in his book Exploring Romans says this, his life was perfectly holy. He never looked with lust, never uttered a hasty, unkind, untrue or frivolous word. He never entertained an impure thought. He was never accused by conscience, never inflamed by wrongful passion, never out of step with the will of God. He never had to apologize for anything he did or retract a single word he said. He lived on earth approximately 12,000 days and every one of them was a marvel of holiness. From the summit of the Mount of Transfiguration, he could have stepped straight into glory. By agreeing to die, he agreed to be counted as a sinner. Luke 22:37 says, For I tell you this, which is written, must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That is talking specifically about the two thieves that hung on either side of him when he died. And it is talking about humanity in general. He was counted as a sinner. His emptying led Christ to his humanity. His humility led Jesus to his death. But that is not all. He could have chosen to die in his sleep at age 95. He still died, right? But no, he chose to die through the worst way possible at that time. Of all the ways that Jesus could have chosen to die, this was the worst. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. The Jews were oppressed for centuries by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Romans. And the worst news that they could get was that their Messiah was killed like a criminal. To the Gentiles, a cross was foolishness. A crucified God defied reason. In fact, there is a cartoon in an old Roman wall which shows a man crucified and instead of the head of the man that was hanging on the cross there is a head of a donkey and there is a person at the foot of the cross raising his hand in worship and there's an inscription that says at the bottom he worships his God that was how ridiculous a crucified God was crucifixion was humiliating it was so humiliating that the Romans who perfected the art of crucifixion promised its citizens that none of them would ever be crucified. It was as painful as it was humiliating. 
In fact, the word excruciating comes from two Latin words, excruciaris, which means out of the cross. The cross, ladies and gentlemen, is a symbol of the extreme humility of Christ. Ken Geyer Jr. in his book, Windows of the Soul, draws a comparison between two executions. He says that the son in the garden of Gethsemane asked the father if there is any other way. The son is then betrayed, arrested, deserted, denied, beaten, tried, mocked, and finally crucified. Because when the son asked the father if there was any other way, the father turned his face away and said, no, there is no other way. Why? Why is it that there is no other way? In the legend Camelot, King Arthur, his wife, Queen Guinevere, and one of his most trusted knights, Sir Lancelot, was in an adulterous relationship. When they were caught and discovered by a wicked scheming Mordred, Sir Lancelot escaped. But the queen wasn't lucky, so she was captured. She faced a trial. The jury found her guilty and sentences her to the flame. As the day of execution years, people come from far and near with one question in their mind, will the king let his wife die? And King Arthur's predicament is captured in the words of Mordred. Arthur, what a magnificent dilemma. Let her die, your life is over. Let her live, your life is a fraud. Which will it be, King Arthur? Do you kill the queen or kill the law? So Arthur decides treason has been committed. The jury has ruled. Let justice be done. And so he stands high in the castle window watching what happens. And the queen is led into the courtyard where the unlit stake is. And there is a man standing with a lit torch waiting to do the judgment. There is a herald who is in the castle with the king and he asks the king the queen is at stake your majesty shall I signal the torch but the king cannot answer with a broken heart he says I can't I can't I can't let her die another execution scene another day another place another king this time instead of Guinevere it's an adulterous humanity that has rebelled against its God and creator stands guilty and in bondage, awaiting the torch of judgment. Would God turn away from the righteous demands of his law and simply excuse the world? Or will he turn his face away from the world that he created and loved? There was only one way to solve this problem. So the king gets down from the high tower, takes off his crown, lays down his royal robes, comes into the courtyard, and in place of the world, while we were yet sinners, he burns at the stake. This is why there was no other way. Because when love and justice collide, the cross is the only way out. Ladies and gentlemen, mercy happens only at the expense of justice. Always. If you have mercy, then there is no justice. If God decides to excuse your sin, then he's not punishing you for it. But he did that. But somebody has to pay. And that happened at the cross. Thirdly, he was exalted. The Bible says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For this reason. Why? Because he voluntarily humbled himself. Christ was exalted. Exaltation follows humility as surely as fall follows pride. We have to humble ourselves before we can be exalted. C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity wrote, He wants you to know him, wants to give you himself, and he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will in fact be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. He's trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible, trying to take off a lot of the silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up and are strutting about like the little idiots we are. Chinese theologian Watchman Nee in his book Release of the Spirit says, Should God be merciful to us and grant us even a small measure of revelation so that we can see ourselves as we are seen by him, we shall immediately be smitten to the ground. We need not try to be humble. Those who live in the light cannot be proud. It is only while dwelling in darkness that we can be proud. Outside of God's light, men can be arrogant and haughty, but under the revelation of the light, they can only prostrate themselves before him it says that God highly exalted him this is the only use of the word highly exalted in all of scripture you know why because there's nobody else who is worthy to be highly exalted it says he bestowed on him the name which is above every name when you're in fourth grade you learned about the definite article and the indefinite article the definite article is the word the in the English language. The indefinite article is the word a or an in the English language. The definite article, the, shows specificity. The indefinite article, a or an, shows non-specificity. So if I said, a man said to me, or a man told me, it means a man, any man. If I say, the man told me, it is a specific man. It says here he was bestowed the name. What is the name? Hebrews 1 verse 4 says, Having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What is the name that was given to Jesus when he was exalted? Is it the name Jesus? No, it was the name Lord. He's called Lord 747 times in scripture shows the centrality of his lordship. Romans 14 and verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. His emptying led Christ to his humanity. His humility led Jesus to his crucifixion. His crucifixion led the Lord Jesus Christ to his exaltation. Just as in his humiliation he got the name Jesus, so also in his exaltation he got the name Lord. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. His lordship is comprehensive. 
Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13 says, And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Ephesians 1.20 says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Comedian Steve Harvey, in one of his comedy routines decided to end this comedy routine by introducing Jesus Christ. If I had the pleasure of bringing out Christ, this is just how I would do it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce a man who needs no introduction. His credits are too long to list. He has done the impossible time after time. He hailed out of a manger in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, by way of heaven. His daddy is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. He holds the record for the world's greatest fish fry. He fed 5,000 hungry souls with two fish, five loaves of bread. He can walk on water, turn water into wine. No special effects, no camera tricks. He has a headshot on every church fan across the country. Even before the kings of comedy, he was hailed the king of all kings, ruler of the universe, alpha and omega, beginning and the end, the bright and the morning star. Some say he's the Rose of Sharon, and some say he's the Prince of Peace. Get up on your feet, put your hands together, and show your love for the second coming of the one and only. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I'm going to give the opportunity for anybody to respond to the sermon. Maybe there's somebody here who has never completely submitted every part of their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If that is you, you can stand up and we'll pray together. Maybe, maybe there's somebody here who's never invited Jesus into your life. You can also stand up. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven to men by which men shall be saved. Except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be the Lord of our lives, Lord God. Hidden we behind- hidden behind the dark recesses of our hearts are things that we hold on to, Lord God. You are Lord over everything, and I pray that you would be Lord over every single part of my life and that of my brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name.